This is The Guardian. Designers, stylists, scholars, brand executives were coming together to open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. They weren't used to seeing us walk up and down Fifth Avenue and, you know, Rodeo Drive and go to the Design District in Miami. That's stylist Monica Morrow, and I'm Kimberly Jenkins. The Invisible Seam is a new podcast available now from Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place program and the Fashion and Race Database. It's been another week of high drama at Westminster as Parliament came back from its holidays and the government found itself with Easter egg all over its face. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson once again apologised for breaking his own COVID laws. But by Wednesday, at Prime Minister's questions, he was done with being humble. Uh, we get on with the job while they flip-flop around like beach flounders on the beach, Mr Speaker. Meanwhile, Priti Patel was challenged over whether her plan to send illegal immigrants to Rwanda is lawful, ethical or even workable and got pretty spiky in response. So, actually, calm down and listen. And all this got me wondering... What happens when people who make the law no longer seem afraid of flouting it? Is our democratic system robust enough to cope with ministers who cross red lines? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, I'm standing in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me are The Guardian's parliamentary sketch writer, John Crace, who's been watching all the action in the House of Commons and is still down there in the thick of it, and Dr Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute Government Think Tank and author of a new book, Held in Contempt, which is all about cleaning up and fixing that democratic system. Hello to you both. Hello, good to be here. Hi there. Before we get stuck into constitutional crises, let's deal with uh, what's obviously the really big question du jour, which is Emmanuel Macron's newly revealed chest hair. <laughs> This week's photos from the French presidential election trail included some of Monsieur Macron, I can only say lolling, really, on a sofa with several shirt buttons raunchily undone. Hannah, I know you're in favour of openness in politics, but how much openness? Like one button open, two buttons open? I think it was just four, wasn't it? I mean, I, there, there was nothing accidental about the revealing of the chest wig. So he clearly thinks it's going to work well for him in the election. Got to be worth a few votes. John, did it, did it do it for you? Is it a trend you could see taking off here? We thought it was racy when David Cameron took his tie off. I don't think it would quite work on Boris Johnson. I thought Macron wore it quite well, actually. I thought it was a sign that he probably thought he was going to beat Le Pen after all. Maybe, Sam. People say Keir Starmer's too buttoned up. Maybe the answer is a cheeky little flash of vest or something. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose it depends whether you've got any hair or not. I couldn't see quite how his suit Monsieur Macron was. (laughs) Maybe a few buttons more. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. We are recording shortly after Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, which has been a pretty dramatic day for everyone involved in politics. We'll start with the latest developments on Partygate, and then we're going to dig down into Priti Patel's attempt to stop refugees crossing the Channel by boat, which is popular with some Tory backbenchers, but getting pushed back in some quite unexpected places. For those of you who've switched off over the Easter holidays, by the way, and have been busy eating chocolate, let's just bring you up to speed with what you missed. Parliament was in recess when Boris Johnson was fined for the now infamous birthday cake celebrations in Downing Street. So Tuesday was his first chance to apologise formally to MPs for breaking Covid laws. And here's what he had to say. And I take this opportunity on the first available sitting day to repeat my wholehearted apology to the House. 
As soon as I received the notice, I acknowledged the hurt and the anger. And I said that people had a right to expect better of their Prime Minister. And I repeat that, Mr Speaker, again in the House now. And here's what Keir Starmer made of that apology. What a joke. Even now, as the latest mealy-mouthed apology stumbles out of one side of his mouth, a new set of deflections and distortions pour from the other. But the damage is already done. The public have made up their mind. They don't believe a word the Prime Minister says. They know what he is. John, I thought Starmer's response was quite an extraordinary moment, really. I mean, Tory MPs were were horribly quiet through it. How did it feel when you were watching it? I thought it was Starmer at his actual very best. I mean, frequently in the past, he's been accused of sort of being too measured, too loyally, if you like. But now he just seemed to let rip. And as you said, the Tory benches did go very, very quiet. And... I kind of think that it could be a sort of turning point in some ways. I was in Prime Minister's Questions just now, and I spent a lot of time watching the Tory front bench, and they still looked shell-shocked. I mean, there was the usual suspects behind them sort of making noise to try and sort of muster up some enthusiasm for the Prime Minister, but they looked absolutely devastated, as if they suddenly realised that there was going to be no moving on from this in the foreseeable future and that they were going to get more of the same for months ahead. That's what I was thinking, looking at it, I have to say. You know, how many more times are they going to have to go through this? You know, it remains possible that there are other fines in the offing and, you know, the abject apology followed by the attempt to move on to a different subject. Is this going to get to be, you know, the pattern for the next few weeks? And Boris Johnson clearly tying the remarks he made about Ukraine, following quickly on from his apology, is that going to be a sustainable strategy to keep saying, well, actually, you know, we need to move on to these other matters, even though every week I'm coming back to talk about this again. I mean, obviously, he may not be fined again, but it seems a distinct possibility. I mean, sort of Boris during PMQs did try and sort of reset the agenda. He said he's sort of almost begging Keir Starmer, why aren't you asking me about all these other things? You know, why aren't you asking about Ukraine? Why aren't we asking about the cost of living? And I mean, Keir Starmer, I mean, quite rightly says, because we haven't got to the end of Partygate. As Hannah said, I think, I mean, more fines are inevitable. If the bar for prosecution is for the birthday cake party, then Lee Kane's leaving party and the party in number 10 outside in the garden, amongst others, I mean, must be in line for a fixed penalty notice. Well, that's certainly and, the assumption. And, and, and I mean, I was really struck that Starmer's response was always very squarely pitched at Tory MPs with uneasy consciences. It's as if he was trying to separate the Prime Minister from his own party to say, you know, he's dragging you guys down with him. You could be a decent party without him why don't you just you just get rid and the question of course then becomes does that work so let's just listen to what mark harper the former tory chief whip had to say after that apology on tuesday i regret to say 
that we have a Prime Minister who broke the laws that he told the country they had to follow, hasn't been straightforward about it, and is now going to ask the men and the decent men and women on this, these benches to defend what I think is indefensible. I'm very sorry to have to say this, but I no longer think he is worthy of the great office that he holds. So what's interesting about Harper is that he leads the COVID recovery group of MPs and lockdown sceptics who, you know, thought the rules were over the top, we overreacted a bit, and who you might think would be more sympathetic in some ways to a PM breaking the rules. So were you surprised to hear that, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, I I think Mark Harper, you know, he's one of the sort of biggest figures to come out and and call for the Prime Minister to go, having been a former chief whip himself. I mean, I think Mark Harper is, amongst Tory MPs, one who's more bothered about the constitution and the way things are done and sort of standards of propriety and so on. So I think that's why, for him, that overrode the, you know, the COVID issue. Yeah, he kind of wants everything to be done properly. And in in a sense, the way in which he made his point to Prime Minister sort of exemplifies that. John, do you think Harper is out there on his own? Do you think, you know, do you get any sense that there are more MPs putting their letters into the 22 committee now or? Not at the moment. I mean, I kind of get the feeling we're in a sort of state of limbo. You know, a lot of Tories are waiting till after the local elections on May the 5th. If the Tories get wiped out there, they may think again. But I also think that a lot of Tory MPs are really struggling at the moment because they can't see a very obvious successor to Boris Johnson. And I think if there was one, then they would jump at it like a shot Mm. because there is so much in Boris Johnson's position that is sort of unsustainable. And Keir Starmer went in on this again at Prime Minister's Questions when he asked... You know, why did he accept Allegra Stratton's uh, yes. resignation? Sorry, before we get on to Wednesday, I just want to walk you back a little bit to last night. So later that evening, the Prime Minister held a meeting of Tory MPs to test the mood and was reportedly a lot more bombastic in private, citing the Rwanda policy as an example of what government could get done under his leadership and accusing the Church of England of being more critical of that policy than they have been of Vladimir Putin, claims which drew an angry response from the church. I mean, you do sort of wonder... How contrite is he really? Does he does he even think he's done anything wrong? I mean, I think he's mostly sorry that he's been called out on this. That's what the apology is really about. We saw this earlier on in the Partygate process where he sort of apologised in the House and then went straight to the tea rooms and told everyone he didn't think he'd he'd done anything wrong. And I think, you know, it's clear that he, he just felt that the rules didn't apply in Westminster and Whitehall. And so having been called out on this and having, I think, in Whitehall, there was surprise that the birthday party in particular met the standards for the Met of fixed penalty notice. And I think that's why the, the fear is there are going to be a series more fines. And every time we discuss Partygate, never mind Tory MPs being stuck with him, we're all stuck with him until the point where Tory MPs decide to dump him. And as long as the answer to that question, you know, as long as they're not ready to, well, it's like that's where it ends. It's as if the entire system is helpless in the face of a politician who doesn't just, you know, decide to voluntarily take himself off. And that feels like it's not just a political question here. It's a constitutional question, isn't it, Hannah? I mean, it's as if we sort of so invested in the kind of good chaps theory of government that, you know, decent people do the right thing that we don't really know what to do if they don't. It's definitely fair to say that the system, the ministerial code, was not formulated with the thought that it would be the prime minister himself who would be breaching it. There is no one that can be 
above him. And But in some ways, that is right, because, you know, how can you have uh, an unelected person or, uh, you know, organisation or whatever it might be saying, well, I'm sorry, this prime minister has to leave now when they are the elected prime minister and, you know, the head of the, the party who have won the most votes in a general election. So it's really tricky. There are ways in which you could, I think, s- strengthen the system. But to say that there's somebody external who can tell the Prime Minister to resign is also really difficult. Because you wouldn't have this in any other profession, would you? If, I mean, if a doctor had done something terrible, you wouldn't say, well, it's up to all the other junior doctors who rely on him for promotion to say whether or not, you know, he should be investigated. You take it out of their hands and refer it to an independent body to strike him off. John, are we, are we being too kind to MPs here? Should they just kind of like grow a spine and do the right thing and, and turn on their leader? After all, you know, he's not their boss. The people are their boss, really. Well, you would have thought. <laughs> I mean, but you're you're both dead right. The whole country is in effect being held hostage by 360 Tory MPs because it's only the Tory MPs who can actually get rid of Boris Johnson. I mean, I think it's quite clear that Boris's sort of character has never been a secret. You know, the fact that he is dishonest and untrustworthy has sort of dogged his political and his journalistic career, you know, throughout. I mean, there was that word cloud survey uh, Mm. that came out on Monday that found that 75% of the country identified liar as the word most associated with Boris Johnson. And I mean, that's an astonishing figure. And just to to pick up on something you said there, John, I mean, I think this isn't just about, you know, whether or not you want Boris Johnson to be our prime minister and his political career. What the Conservative uh, Party have in their hands is also, you know, our constitution itself, because if they are going to say, well, actually, we don't care about whether the prime minister has lied to the House to the extent that we don't even want to bother having an investigation into it because that doesn't matter or, you know, we find this plausible. I think that that sense that the British public have that their prime minister is lying, which is what that word cloud would suggest, is just really corrosive of the political system itself. And why would people think that Parliament was an effective institution doing its job, holding government to account so that we can all be sure we're being run by a robust system of government if they just think that the information given to Parliament by ministers might be a complete fabrication. I just wonder where all the sort of, you know, understandable public anger and frustration about all of this is is leading. I don't know what you think about that, John. I mean, potentially we're sort of heading towards a situation of social unrest, aren't we? Potentially, yes. I mean, I think the other possibility, which is sort of equally disturbing is where the public decide that they just become so disengaged that they don't actually expect anything more than Boris Johnson from their politicians. And I, and I think sort of that is part of the Johnson playbook. We all just switch off and he drags everyone down to his level, really, so that nobody expects any more. OK, let's pause there. In a minute, we'll move on to the politics of immigration and why Priti Patel's plan is too much, even for Theresa May. And yes, I I do mean that, Theresa May.
Welcome back. So on Tuesday, we also heard from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, about the deal she struck for migrants who crossed the channel in small boats to be sent to Rwanda and obliged to seek asylum there, not in Britain. The United Nations has warned that the policy may be unlawful. Refugee groups have suggested it's immoral. But the focus in the Commons was really on whether it's, it's even workable. Home Office briefings suggest only men would be sent to Rwanda. But that left MPs on both sides of the House asking, well, wouldn't that just mean that smugglers put women and children on boats instead, knowing that they won't be sent back? In a way, it creates a sort of perverse incentive. So let's hear what Theresa May had to say about that. Can I say with respect to my right honourable friend that from what I have heard and seen so far of this policy, I do not support the removal to Rwanda policy on the grounds of legality, practicality and efficacy. But I want to ask her about one very specific issue. I understand that those who will be removed will only be young men, that families will not be... uh, Well, the Home Secretary is shaking her head, so I've obviously misunderstood the policy in that sense. But if it is the case that families will not be broken up and the Home Secretary is nodding. Does she not believe, and where is her evidence, that this will not simply lead to an increase in the trafficking of women and children? John, were you surprised to hear Theresa May, author of The Hostile Environment herself, criticising this policy? Does that tell you something, if even Theresa May is against Well, well, absolutely. On another day, it would have been a sort of headline news, really. I mean, because it came the same day as sort of Johnson's sort of Partygate apology. But as you said, author of the uh, hostile environment, you know, the advertising vans going around saying go home, etc., etc. And to have cooked up a policy that was too hostile even for Theresa May is quite something. Yvette Cooper's response on, on behalf of Labour was, was really focused on the practical objections. You know, she was talking about the cost of supporting asylum seekers in Rwanda because the British government said it will support them there as it would be much more expensive than actually putting them up in hotels here. You know, she was saying, will it actually stop people smuggling? There's no evidence that it, it will. And that's supposedly the aim of the policy. She was talking about very practical objections rather than sort of moral outrage and personally I thought that worked for me there's no point preaching to the choir whipping up more emotion people already know whether they think it's wrong or right she's got to reach those voters who are more hard-headed but I guess some people might feel it's a bit bloodless as a response or might want Labour to be a bit more sort of passionately outraged how do you think it landed in the Commons John? I think it landed okay I mean as you say Labour don't want to look like they're open borders really you know they want to look as if they're sort of tough but fair on immigration so going in on the practicalities for Yvette Cooper was probably the right way about it I mean the practicalities do seem absurd you know it seems like it hasn't been thought out it hasn't particularly been costed and there is no guarantee that it's even going to be effective even if you could tolerate the idea of basically repatriating our refugee crisis to Rwanda you know and Priti Patel sort of put up this rather absurd facade that Rwanda was some sort of human rights haven and that she was doing... I found that extraordinary, actually. She kept saying, you know, she, whenever people said this is not a great idea, she was suggesting that, you know, she said at one point it's xenophobic to suggest that Rwanda is not an ideal place to send people, as if, you know, we're now in a looking-class world where it's racist to 
impose this policy, but actually to, to ship people to Rwanda is far. That's that's the progressive policy. It got very spiky. Yeah, it's sort of bizarre. I mean, especially when you know, even on the British government websites, it found it was questioning sort of Rwanda's human rights records only last year. And it got very spiky. I mean, Pretty Patel herself got quite tetchy. You've watched her often enough. You know, did you feel that she was? It looked as if she was feeling under pressure, or is that her normal demeanour? For for me, it's her sort of normal way. I mean, she likes to pick a fight and never never knowingly steers away from one. I don't think. I mean, I thought the whole thing was quite performative, actually. You know, she wanted to be seen to be fighting for this action-based policy. I think, you know, they, there's probably a recognition in government there's quite, going to be quite a lot of challenges to this policy and it may not actually end up anywhere. So actually what she gets to say in the House about why the government thinks it's a good idea and, and is prepared to do something, which it looks quite bold, I think is part of the point. We also heard something else important um, during that exchange, which is an admission of, of uh, serious qualms within the Home Office itself. Here's what Priti Patel had to say about newspaper reports that her permanent secretary, Matthew Rycroft, had formally objected to signing the policy off, which would be only the second time, I think, in 30 years that's happened at the Home Office. In relation to accounting officer advice, contrary to reports in the newspapers, the permanent secretary did not oppose this agreement nor assert that it is poor value for money. Rather, he stated in his role as accounting officer that the policy is regular, proper and feasible, but there is not currently sufficient evidence to demonstrate value for money. It is the job of ministers to take decisions, Mr Speaker, and it is the job of ministers, Mr Speaker, more often than not, to take tough decisions in the interest of our country. Now, that all sounds a bit dry and technical and blathering on about accounting officers, but a ministerial direction to a department, it can be quite a serious red flag, can't it, Hannah? What does it, what does it mean? So, so what it is, is a request from the top civil servant in a department to uh, a minister to say, look, I think this this policy is not one that I would recommend you pursue and you are going to have to tell me to do it. And what the, the significance of that is that the accountability, which would normally flow through the Permanent Secretary to Parliament, instead of it being the accountability of the Permanent Secretary, at that point it transfers to the Secretary so of State. Of, it's kind of on your own head, be it, basically. This one's on you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think it's, it's you know... Yes, it's unusual in the Home Office. It's unusual generally. We've seen 47 of these, according to the Institute for Government's count, since 2010. But it is just an important mechanism whereby civil servants can put their concerns on the record. That has to be made public. But I think Matthew Grycroft did it in the, the sort of probably the softest possible way, as Pretty Patel made clear there. It wasn't a sort of combative one. It was just, look, we don't think we've got the evidence to say that it's going to be cheaper to do it this way than not do anything at all. We were saying we don't think we've got the evidence that will stop people smuggling, doesn't it? Which is what, which is where the saving would come from exactly. if, if people smuggle. Does that tell us something about what's going on behind the scenes in the Home Office, though? I mean, it's not usually a sign of a happy ship if it gets to the stage that a civil servant has to publicly object. So we'd obviously much rather usually sort this out behind the scenes. Yes, I think that is true. And I think that when we talk to former permanent secretaries, they often say, you know, that it's a useful mechanism because it is rarely used and that you can, at certain points in a conversation with your minister, say, well, look, if you were to continue to pursue this policy, I'm afraid I think I would have to ask for a direction. And that can be a useful way of stimulating a sort of a review and another sort of reflection and so on and not having to get to that point. So 
on this, I think, you know, it's very clear that Priti Patel was given this task to stop the small boats from France by Boris Johnson when she was given the job. This is the thing she is very focused on. And so if anything was going to be a policy where she was going to stick to her guns, having found we understand, explored a lot of different and rather bizarre in some cases options. Not always legal options. <laughs> always legal. Like, I mean, Having what, found one, this is you know, what she's sticking to. I don't know in. how much time you spend um, chatting to current Home Office civil servants or whether you could tell us if you do. But w- what do you think the climate's like inside the Home Office? Because obviously the previous permit secretary fell out rather badly with Priti Patel and ended up getting a substantial payout. Yeah, well, I think, you know, and Matthew Rycroft took over at that point. And, you know, I think... It's never an easy department, is something that it's true to say. I mean, obviously, we spoke earlier about Preacher Patel sometimes having quite a combative approach to management, should we say. But in, in any case, the Home Office is a big, wide-ranging, difficult department to run. And, uh, you know, again, speaking to former ministers who've operated there, there's always something coming out of the woodwork to bite you. It's famously dysfunctional, isn't it? I can't remember which former Home Secretary said you're only ever like one resignation, one person away from (laughs) resigning. There's always someone in a room somewhere doing something you don't know about, which will be a massive scandal. John Dumain, Priti Patel is, as we said, uh, famously pugnacious in her approach. Do you think, do you think the Home Office is even sort of functioning properly underneath her? I can't believe it is because I can't believe her management style is sort of conducive to a functional office. I mean, she picks fights and also I kind of think she's sort of there at Boris Johnson's discretion. I think she knows that, you know, as soon as Boris goes, there is no way that she remains in the cabinet, I wouldn't have thought. And so... I think there is a sense in the Home Office that she is sort of merely a sort of cipher for Boris at some level. Mm, And she's reliant on him. I want to come back to something, just to to wrap this up, that John said about, you know, how real is this policy anyway? Is it even going to happen? What really struck me listening to that debate is it feels like the government's just sort of almost begging someone to take it to court over this Rwanda policy, you know, because there are, you know, so many obvious sort of avenues for legal challenge. And I I wonder in a way if that's almost the point if they lost they can say well at least we tried you know and the lefty lawyers stopped us damn them and if they win well you know they they get their way there's kind of no consequence to devising a policy that might even breach international law but am i am i being too cynical john like a jaded old hack no i think you're (laughs) you've you've nailed it i think they they look on it very much as a win-win situation if they get taken to court then they can live with that and just say they tried to do something and it was the sort of the lawyers and the sort of wishy-washy sort of there there was a new line from boris johnson corbynistas in islington suits Whatever an Islington suit is. Yeah, I was confused by that. Yeah, yeah. because Boris is actually the one from Islington. I think sort of Keir Starmer's from Camden, myself. Very different uh, suits in Camden. Totally different. Absolutely. Apparently so. I'm from South London, so I don't really know. (laughs) Me too, John. As long as it's suits and not open open shirts, that's all we have to say. Yeah. (laughs) 
Thank you very much, both of you. That's all for today. My thanks to uh, both John and Hannah. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more about Rwanda, you can listen to Sunda Katwala from British Future speaking to Noshin Iqbal on Today in Focus uh, podcast. I just wanted also to highlight a special Guardian event coming up on May the 3rd at 8 o'clock when you can join me and John Harris speaking with Labour MP Lisa Nandy in a live-streamed event discussing not just Partygate but the, the upcoming local elections, the cost of living and more. To get a ticket it just follow the link on this podcast page this episode was produced by natalie katena music by axel Picoutier. the executive producers are maz ebdahaj and nicole jackson and john will be back next thursday